Hello, Jeremy. Hello, Raphael. Michael Jackson. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you sound like Michael a, Jackson. Yeah. What, well, someone told us one of us on the podcast sounds like Michael Jackson, so I'll let you guys decide. Yeah. Ow! <laughs> I, I mean... Man, what a what a story! I, I I was afraid to watch that doc. I haven't watched the Epstein documentary or the Michael Jackson. Doc- it's also depressing. Uh, I don't I don't want to know. Mm. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Someone bought. Did you we know, have, hear someone? Someone bought his mansion though for for really cheap. Like it was like instead of a hundred million, they bought it for ten million. <laughs> yeah, and then you just wait twelve years, and then you build uh, build a hotel. Yeah, you tear the whole thing down, throw out bubbles, whatever, you know, evict bubbles. Yeah. <laughs> Get lost. They uh, should preserve it as cultural heritage, I guess. It's like it's like Versailles, but like in 200 years, it'd be very interesting. Yeah. I mean, you could also argue that, um, I mean, there's, yeah, there's all, you know, Britney Spears, we should have done the same thing. Instead, we're going to just destroy her life and, and times as well. There are these people that are the center the whole world's attention was focused on them for periods of time whitney houston i think britney's doing well again she's probably just making a lot of money in vegas uh no she's not she's like no she's barely holding it together and her father is holding on to all her money like her money's in a trust and it's like you gotta get boot up your tmz (laughs) oh yeah i'm not so into pop culture yeah but it's also also kind of tragic you'll it's it's really sad um anyway What's not sad is well nothing. <laughs> yeah, how, how how are things over there? Oh boy, I mean, I think I, I just saw my sister, and I was like, "How was your week?" She's like, "I didn't go outside. Work is a nightmare. You know, people are collapsing." <laughs> She's, well, it seems that I'm sure everyone who's listening agrees, but it, it's it's getting harder and harder psychologically, and that people are really. Trying to stay positive and think like, well, I'm healthy, my family's healthy, I'm all right, but it's hard and it's just like endless Zoom. And mm-hmm. I have to say that I, I'm I'm feeling pretty good and I'm actually traveling right now. I'm in the Netherlands, so I, I'm in a lucky position. But yeah. from a lot of people I talk to, it's like, man, I don't know how much longer I can take this. I'm definitely your dose of optimism uh, in any conversation. And so Kristen this week was like, you know, I was complaining about something or something. She's like, I think you're depressed. And I was like, what? No, that's impossible. That's impossible. No, I don't that's get not who I am. <laughs> I'm the antidote to depression. Yeah, I'm but, privileged. I don't, I'm not no. allowed to be. <laughs> but like I was on my way to get ready for this podcast. I was like, God, I feel really weak. My my muscles are sore. <laughs> like, how, much, how much time uh, when you have the, a full Zoom work day, how much time are you? Like what, what time does your first meeting start? Well, I, did, computers? I did do some like, I was talking to a friend so, uh, and I did a screen t- time kind of checkup uh, with him. Yeah. And then he was like, I was like, let's look at our screen time. And he looks at he looked at his across his devices and it was like 10 and a half hours. And I was like, oh, I guess I better look up mine. And uh, it was it was about that. It was just as bad. It was about a, it was about 10, nine to 10 hours a day. Well, if if. If outside of that you did six hours of outdoor exercise, you'd be okay. Yeah, in the night, in the freezing cold, like it's yeah. a polar vortex. <laughs> it's like Rocky, yeah. like, who, <laughs> who in the I mean, right it, mind is doing this? Yeah, I mean, it was funny. Like, it was funny. It was a coincidence that everything started in March and then the weather started getting better, so that gave an optimistic feeling. And then, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh. But now, I mean, um, I'm in the Netherlands now and 
Christina went to her parents in Florida, and so she was. It's like a new world opened up for her. Yeah, did you read the article? Outside. Everyone's moving to Miami. That's the latest. <laughs> like we were talking about it. Like maybe it's nice. Yeah. Well, the the mayor of Miami is like he's so impressed. He's like I didn't realize because he went he 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 attributed it to uh, his social media post where he said, "Hey, you're all welcome to come to Miami." Or something <laughs> like that. Um, but it changed like, the game. Yeah. The story keeps being like people are moving out of Silicon Valley because it's so expensive. And where are they going? They're going to Austin, Texas. In Miami, Florida, they're escaping. They don't need to be grounded in California anymore. There's lower taxes and warmer weather to the east. Um, yeah, so. I mean, it, it, when you think about it, the, I always liked Miami, but I, it's just such a vacation vibe. You don't think about living there. You're just like, oh, where are the best restaurants? Let's have a good week. Mm-hmm. And uh, it does have an amazing multicultural amount of authentic food from around the world. So that's a big draw for me mm. and i love the beach but i never thought of like oh i want to live there so i i would like to go back and maybe spend more time there like four weeks and kind of see how it feels mm-hmm. i yeah. don't know for some reason i have an aversion against east east side of town east coast what <laughs> west is no, but you live at. on the east coast no i know i know but i live on the west side of town <laughs> oh yeah i'm in the east uh, of eastern of europe York, that's where i'm yeah. from yeah Lower lower east side, <laughs> but but um, I'm I'm very happy to travel. But get, arriving here, it's cold and rainy, and we've been talking about where do we want to live. And since Christina works remotely, we kind of have a freedom to spend time in different places. And mm-hmm. oh, why not try the Netherlands? And then I get here, and it's rainy and cold. I'm like, hmm, mm. Miami doesn't sound bad right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, except I told yeah. you it's not going to be around for very much longer. Yeah. Yeah, but sink. why not why not rent a place for three years and then it can go underwater? That's the right strategy. You should rent a place that's depreciating in value. Your rent will get cheaper over time as the as the state sinks into the ocean. Yeah, yeah. But, but anyway. uh, it, it, I mean, the other argument would be, if there are places that are going to disappear, then you better enjoy them. Oh, that's a great argument. Yeah, like it's yeah. the same argument that um, has led to the extinction of many animals, which is um, every time there's been an animal near extinction, the numbers of hunters seeking to hunt the animals. No, 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 no. That's different logic. (laughs) Miami's not going to sink deeper because I go there. Yes, because all the weight is going to push the state. Yeah, yeah. My my fat ass is going to sink Miami. Yeah, Uh, You're making me say bad words on the air. Um, Should we get to our question this this week's question? It's a very simple question, but very profound. Yes. Our our question comes from um, Katsugi uh, Nogami, and he's a Japanese artist living in Canada, I think. and here's his question. Hi, I'm Katsuki Nogami, media artist from Japan. I'm glad a good point came back. I also have a question. How can media artists, especially installation artists, make money? I have sold my work for only museum, which has technicians, because it needs maintenance. Thank you for the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think this is the number one question everyone uh, is figuring out. Yes, and it's an exciting time to ask this question, in my opinion. Um, yeah. in, in my opinion, the rules are, we're, in the, we're at the pivot point of, of new rules. Maybe there's been several other occasions, but now more than ever, there's an opportunity. I, I, we'll get into it, but uh, yeah. you and I have very different practices and probably different points of view on this question. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean... Um, where do we begin? Where do we begin? I think you begin with what you want to make. 
Mm-hmm. That's where you should start. Because if you if you make what you want to make, the result will probably be the best. If you start thinking, how do I make the most money? Then you're like, oh, oil painting makes the most money, so I should do that. But maybe mm-hmm. your talent lies in thinking in spaces and experiences and all those things. And then if I assume that what he's saying in the question is that he is most comfortable making installations, then and media that's probably the way to go. Yeah. And I think he mentions, um, or generally media installations, like even just keeping them going um, for more than a single day, in my experience, can be a challenge. Well, I think think, uh, when you think about media installations, when you try to sell them as a work, like as a single work, the way a museum or a collector buys a work, it's it's very Mm user-unfriendly. So it's like trying to make a video game in Instagram. And like another, you can yeah, make, yeah. It, it, like trying to to fit a video game into Instagram, and Instagram is just videos and images. It's not yeah. an interactive platform. So, or it's the difference between Nespresso and like an expensive espresso machine. <laughs> like, yeah, but 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 what I mean is, um, if you try to fit it into the art market model, it's very clumsy and difficult, and only a few people can do it. Mm-hmm. But if you fit it into uh, a sort of tourism model where you pay a ticket or the concert model. Ah, uh, yes, you're jumping straight into then, it. Yeah. Then it might be possible. But I, I think that there's two ways to be. Like, I think the artist approach is I'm going to close my eyes and look into my soul and decide what I want to do. And I think the business person is like, how can I make my customer happy? Well, they do say that... Um, so. Th- that in every but do you know bu- what I mean? No, but I, in like, any business, you need the creative person, but you also need the operator. Like um, businesses with two founders. Yeah, but then the artist has to be both. Well, this is the thing. The artist ends up being, there's this book called The E-Myth. I think I've re- referred to it, The Entrepreneur Myth, on the podcast a few times. But there are actually three roles. There's the In any business, there's the role of the manager, and that's the operator kind of role that I was talking about. There's the role of the technician, and that's the person who's kind of like, the craft, you know, you're always advocating for craft on the podcast, but then there's the entrepreneur and that's the dreamer creative person. It's just like spilling paint everywhere and being, you know, and and saying like, Oh, let's try this and let's do that. And the future is all about that. Basically the way I talk about life on the podcast. And, but when you start a business, you have to occupy all three roles, even though you might've started a business just to do the one thing. I just want to have fun. I don't want to have a boss, right? I just want to be creative. Um, But you actually have to do all three. And a lot of people, can't do all three and so you know some people advocate for well you should really find those partners before you start a business other people say you can hire that out or automate aspects of it but you yeah. can't really do that the problem with doing that is you might um say you automated or you outsourced um the manager role you might actually lo- be losing money and when that person leaves you know even if you're doing well, you now have to learn but their I th- role. But I think I think uh, you're thinking too much in too much. a company form, and I think most of our listeners are just one person. They don't have a successful business person as a friend, and they want to make yeah, crazy yeah, installations yeah. and find a way to do it. So I, I don't that's think how most businesses are most businesses finding are just venture one capital. No, I know, but the, I I don't think this model of like, oh, what I should do is go on LinkedIn and find an investor, and uh, I don't know. No, no, no. But you did mention that like. Um, you know, you could charge ticket prices, and there's a couple people that have done that successfully. And Meow Wolf was a collective of artists that actually got together. Well, I think this Meow Wolf thing is a good example 
the same way when you say, oh, we should make smaller pieces of art and sell them in multitudes and then everyone can afford to buy them. Mm-hmm. And the same with meow art. It's, it sounds good in theory, but then what happens is well, what happens it turns is the to pandemic, bad art. <laughs> the pandemic also crushed their... Well, let's, the, let's not get too distracted. But it, yeah, I'm because very, you might argue this, this is a big ice, issue for me. Is, yeah. is When you democratize art, something happens and it becomes cheesy. So wait a second. You didn't think the ice cream museum was a fantastic <laughs> work of art? No, no. I'm, I, this is very important to me. I want to be serious for a second. But yeah. I really think when you democratize art, it becomes cheesy. It can. I think literally I just you know, had a call this morning with... Um, you know, a, a business partner, let's call them, like where I'm trying to work on a project and we're trying to decide on the parameters for who... Are they the would, ones who who put the cheese on it? Yeah, they. well, we are, We both agreed, like, if we were going to build a platform together for artists and we were going to support the artists through production, like the idea would be to, we do the production for you, you get, you know, a very large share of, of the, the proceeds. But to do it, we're like, the only way to make this work is if the art isn't cheesy, and so concept is going to be a hundred percent of what we what's, privilege. What's funny is is you're in a position where you're kind of acting like a patron and a coach. Yeah, but by doing that, you're trying to control the art, and instead, the classic model of make the art and buy it if you like it. It's it kind of separates the artist from the the it's money a market model. Yeah, it's a market model which sounds like it would influence the artist to make market friendly art. But in a way, in, in my experience, mm-hmm. it's more freedom because I just make a bunch of stuff. Some of it sells, some of it doesn't, and things work out. But I'm not sitting down with people being like, oh, so what do you really mean? And can't <laughs> we shape this a bit? And, and, and how is the online experience? And what, what do, does your audience think? And how are you going to market this? And like, yeah, but all I think that, stuff. that you're simplifying you know, some of the relationships you've had. Or like if we use the example of like Mary Boone in the 1980s, she yeah. would have worked specifically, or even Zwerner today, or probably the best example would be Gagosian and Sarah, Richard Serra. Those gallerists worked with their artists to create a, a product that yeah, was of yeah. superior quality and appeal to the collector that they understood who was the customer. Yeah, yeah. So each ecosystem shapes the work. Yeah, I'm just saying you can't separate. Like the, the it's it really goes back to what I said in the first place, which is like a bi- the business partnership is those three roles, and that's where a gallery. I've had a bad gallery, let me put it this way, for like most of my career, and I didn't realize until far too late. I kept blaming myself, like why isn't my work selling? Why isn't it? And it, it's not that it's because I di- I did exactly what you did. You said I was like 100% focused on the creativity, and that was great for my honestly for my practice in terms of showing in museums and and getting like weird festivals interested in my work. But from a monetization standpoint, it was a terrible partnership and it took way too long to identify that. Um, And, you know, I think that that's the mistake a lot of artists make is they blame themselves when it's like they should blame their partnership and that they're just missing the wrong partner. So Um, in, in a way he's asking a question to two people who have not succeeded to sell installations because I sell mm. works and I sell websites, but I don't sell installations. But very few people do sell installations and outside you the sell. museum context. So so one of the things that came to mind to me in, in the question is when you make art that's kind of small and compact, there's a freedom in the sense that you're completely in control of the work and you don't need support to make it. So mm-hmm. whatever that small thing is, like animated GIFs or videos or paintings or watercolors or photos or whatever. If you make work that relies on the permission of curators, then that's the collaboration. And you you might have an idea for a performance or for a wall painting, 
but you need permission to make it. So there's a yep. a certain sa- sense of autonomy if you, if you make compact work. I think one of the things where installations are concerned, I've made tons in my career. Like I haven't not made installations, um, but they were always commissioned. So like I took zero financial risk. Um, and I think working with a, if you want to work with museums, like you said, a curator gives you permission. Typically you can, you know, get funding through grants or through museum partnerships and commissions to make that possible. It's just it's going to be, it's different. It's like in software, it's like enterprise versus mass distribution, right? Yeah. It's like Steam yeah. versus like well, hiring a developer. It's another anecdote. Like a friend of mine, new media artist, I was visiting his home in Amsterdam and we're sitting down and we're like, oh, all these collectors are scared to buy new media art. And they're afraid of the upkeep and whatever. And then I was looking around the room. It's like, okay, so how many new media pieces do you own? Exactly. Exactly. And he's like, well, none. And it was all photos and drawings of friends of his. And so when you think about it, would you buy a media art installation? And what would you do with it? Yeah. In fact, I have bought a few, but very few. And I even own one of your media works. Yeah. And I bring it. I only put it up. But my media works are are compact. I I don't think they're so difficult to own. Like your websites? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I'm, I'm talking about a media a installation with, with physical works. So mm-hmm. even if your your budget is, like you're a starting collector and you want to spend 20000 a year, so you might buy one or two works a year. And, um, it, you know, you could also collect a lot of small works. But like, let's say you want, like, two big paintings a year, and then one year you feel adventurous and you buy this installation that involves three computers and three projectors and the software and etc but you live in a normal apartment and then you can't enjoy it that often and then you could show it every now and then in a project space and mm-hmm. or you could buy that other work that you wanted and you have this empty wall in your home and yeah i mean i'm not being a- cynical but no, i'm, I'm no. just talking about like I mean, I think the most famous yeah. example, there have been a few, there was like electric objects. The only one that survived is sedition of like companies that tried to make your the screens in your home, like platforms for selling electronic art yeah. in limited edition. No, no, no. But I, I, I think now you're talking about uh, compact works again. Those are yeah. not installations. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So if we go back to yeah. installation, yeah, the, the, the way I think you could make it work, and I've seen, I've had friends who have made it work, is a commission, private commission-based practice where no i think you're thinking the wrong way really i think the way you have to think is you you can't change your practice you can you have to become mythical you have to become (laughs) a myth and a legend and then you can sell weird stuff so i think that's the only way yeah become famous you mean yeah but but not just famous like that's terrible terrible i mean i had the same i've had the same strategy my whole career that's why i called myself a famous new media artist (laughs) Um, the you know essentially yeah, but like people will save a Joseph Boyce installation, but they won't save anybody's installation. Yeah, or Chris Burden or something like that. But yeah, know, so you have to become a legend. You have to do something outrageous. But to, and you have to be prolific. You have to do a, lo- a large volume of work. And, and also, there's this this thing that I've noticed of media artists is that they think the work is not selling because it's media art. Yeah, I that's, think that's, that's absolutely that's not right. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe it's not selling because it's not that good. Well, first and of all, like it's selling is a relative term. Selling for what price to whom, you know, is the first question you have to ask, right? So 
like outside of the creative practice, who's who is likely to buy? Sorry, we don't have a simple answer. Well, customer is important. To, that's so. If I was starting yeah. a company, and I, I know that art and capital hate to to mingle, but if we're talking about how do you make money, like I don't know how to avoid it. So if you're trying to make money and that's your goal, and I'm gonna get into, I have strategies for like not making money. By the way, actually, I'm just gonna <laughs> say it right now. Losing money might be the most profitable thing you can do as an artist. Actually, I'm going to get this out of the out of the way now because if we don't get to this in the podcast, our audience has lost a tremendous amount. In Canada, and I have to investigate for the region that our listeners are in, but I encourage you to do this. The best way to research this is to hire an accountant. But if you have a full-time job or even a part-time job, you can take your business income losses against your primary income. So that means that it's profitable to be an artist who doesn't make money. And I'll explain it to you in simple terms, which is like, if I earn $100,000 a year, but my art practice loses $20,000 a year, I'm only taxed $80,000 a year. Um, and what if you can do that, then you pay less tax, you actually earn additional income on your primary full time job. And I've been doing that for years. And it's afforded me a great lifestyle. <laughs> it's afforded it, you the Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but honestly, I, I'm not shy about it. It's within the tax code. My account uh, is the first account I ever a, had. We should make a cover image for this episode of you on top of the hood of the car <laughs> and saying, I earned this by losing money in the art world. Well, not only that, an electric car or any green vehicle <laughs> puts you in, also has different tax write-offs. And if you're, if you're, if you're going to be a prof, like a non-traditional artist, get really good at losing money. I'm, I'm like, I know this is kind of my like, but Scott that would, Galloway that would moment. mean like most people don't have a day job that pays a hundred thousand. Most people have a day job that pays 15,000 and then you got to get your priorities. They don't straight. pay much taxes anyway. <laughs> get your priorities straight. First thing, yeah. get the high paying job. And I can tell you there are certain <laughs> areas where you can make a lot of money with little effort. Okay. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe get into banking. I don't know, whatever it is. Like, um, Barbara Kruger got into <laughs> That's what Jeff Koons did. He, he yeah, just, what Koons did. I think he worked on Wall Street to, to fund his first art, art show. Right. Yeah. Whatever funding model you want to explore, but you're, you're, if you want to make whatever you want, like, I'm sorry, but we have to talk about this. Like, if you want to be able to make whatever you want and not have to earn, if you want to be free in your, yeah, if you really want to be free, let me give you the recipe to be free. Like, it's Raphael versus Jeremy on the podcast. Jeremy's recipe is lose as much money as possible, but write that off on your taxes against a full time job. Um, By the way, like, if you can in your, in your day job, try and negotiate like 80% or less time on the job and take a pay cut in exchange for that. That's what I've done. What that does is it gives you additional space for your business, but it doesn't revoke your full-time status that you can you can count losses against. All of this though can be worked out with your accountant. And I like the best <laughs> I offer this service for no, the, the reduced rate uh, offer code. <laughs> <laughs> but there's so, I I meet so many artists that don't write off expenses that like that pay tax as an artist. And I like this is where you realize I'm pretty conservative, but like artists are don't need to pay tax. They're they're you're providing a tremendous social serve cultural service, and the the fact is a lot of other people who aren't doing that can pay can pay you right. And the way they're going to pay you is through you losing money in your practice. I, I really yeah. highly recommend it. And every any accountant I've ever hired, I've never spent. Raph and I have a lot of conversations about this off the podcast, but don't spend more than five hundred bucks on an accountant a year. Have them file your taxes. I guarantee you'll get more than $500 back. So you're going to make profit just hiring an accountant. And it'll change your life. I guarantee it. 
Yeah, that's okay, that's, but we can move the, on from that. that's the economic <laughs> component, the direct economic. Then, but it's I creative talk- too. It's because I don't you don't have to worry about being creative. No, that I, I, I want to talk about something else. Okay, like a different angle. All right, and that's the installation versus the compact work. Yes, and I want to think about that for a second and and juxtapose those two, uh, even though they're not separate and there are many. It's a gradient between the two. You can go from installation to large sculpture to small sculpture to painting and as it goes on it gets more practical so think about the internet when it began everybody was making home pages javascript arrived uh, plugins arrived people were doing all kinds of crazy experimentation and it was the fun innocent time of the internet uh, with midi background music and animated gifs and little javascript games and etc and then think where it headed, and now it's Instagram, and there are all these rules. So basically, the Instagram experience, everything has been formalized. These are the image sizes. This is the duration of a video, mm-hmm. and you have to work in those constraints. And the early internet was more, you can create your own environment, you can create your own homepage, and you could do a whole lot more. So the, see, the yeah. early internet was more like installation, and the modern internet, the social networks are more like the art market, like this yeah, you, is all, er, have, all the only thing we accept. You get an eight foot cube you can install your work in. Basically. Yeah. And so what's and actually let's say that still images score better than videos or the other way. Like it it's a game and there are very clear rules. Mm-hmm. And maybe the early internet the the rules were not clear and that people weren't even thinking of it as a game. People weren't even on it. You know, like Yeah. Yeah. So I think you can think about it in those terms, and then uh, when you want to be effect, what I'm trying to say is that many artists are conceptual artists, even though they use a single medium or work in a certain medium. I think most artists think a lot, and you know, after so many years of conceptual art, it just feels like you could mold your idea into any form. It feels that way, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of. Do you still want to make the weird homepage that's kind of obscure, or do you want to be an Instagram star or a TikTok star? And, and yeah, I mean, you I want th- to take advantage. I think of there's the a chan- tension there. Yeah. In yeah. business, they call that chan- those are your sales channels potentially, but like the, you have these channels to, and a channel is just a pathway to an audience. That's why they call it a channel. It's like a don't think of it like television channel, but like a like a shipping channel, like a waterway. But you need, there are pathways to audiences. And I'm with you, Raphael. Like in the internet era, the idea that someone will visit your homepage is near zero. Um, yeah. Because yeah. Google is the primary. Uh, well, shop the, I'm talking before Google. Yeah. Yeah. But then people, other, before Google, right? Like people stopped using the internet that way and they started using platforms and aggregated. Um, Aggregated content via algorithm. Yeah, the, but the algorithm, it's the solution to, I don't know what to look at. <laughs> it's like, yeah. okay, why don't you, yeah. why don't we just but, show you But that's stuff? a good point. That's a good point. Like when someone is starting to guide you what to look at, it's more convenient for them if all the formats are the same. And it's like, okay, here are images and we can use tags and it's real time and it's added really quickly. So the web is much slower at surfacing new images than social media. If yeah. if you miss an opening and you search for the hashtag and you're like, oh, that's what the work looked like. And it's much quicker than trying to find it on the web. I think you have to think about it um, in a multi-channel way, though. Like, so, you know, you that you might be posting on 
Instagram, this is, this is where it gets kind of sleazy and cheesy, but like you also have to probably get some press like people have, because on Instagram, you're going to have a following count. That's going to be a, what, like a few hundred people, maybe a few thousand, but then it rarely, you rarely transcend that group of people to break out of that. You have to find ways to, um, you know, find other networks or people, other communities. And one of the ways you can do that is by like, you know, getting some press, but, um, you've had a few occasions in your career. I feel like where you've been really good at expanding your potential audience, um, and not do not it, not feeling cheesy. Um, whether it's putting out a book, like using other formats to attract different yeah, but groups I, of people. But before we go to the sort of distribution um, methods and tricks, I was thinking about the installation versus the compact work and that in a sense, it's easier to make an installation because you can just be like, okay, let's fill one room with oh, lemonade yeah. and let's yeah. fill one room with Coca-Cola and it's radical. Like, yeah. Just, just uh, right to play by the rules is actually a, really hard, is what you're saying. Yeah, and so if someone says, "Okay, you can do anything you want, but it has to be on a mm-hmm. letter-sized canvas, like really small," it's, it's hard to make something impressive at that scale. Yeah, it's extremely difficult, and you're competing against the entire history of that dimension. Yeah, and and instead, if you're like, "Okay, we have half a million budget, you can use all the electronics you want," it's going to look impressive no matter what you do. Mm-hmm. If you just say Buy buy twelve hundred MacBooks yeah. and turn them all on at the same time, and you hear the chime sounds like as big as an opera. It remind yeah, it reminds me. I once like demanded like a media wall for like a festival that yeah. I, was, I was like, and the center of my work will be this media wall. <laughs> yeah, and of course, like and people were just like, impressed with this the media wall. Yeah, the screen, yeah. the screen was the whole thing. Um, but but then it 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 is really helpful seeing other artists and other strategies and learn from other. Sp- people's successes and failures mm-hmm. and um you know what's interesting about this installation thing? no no just no for no a please oh, oh, okay yeah well I was I, just I, i'm just saying you, if, if you compare an artist like david sally who is a very suave sort of market artist who did everything at the right time and buy real estate in new york and he exemplifies sort of high functioning business artist mm-hmm and then I look at someone like Pippa Lotti Rist, who probably doesn't make as much money, but she has so much fun making her work. And so it's like, what kind of life do you want? Do yeah. you want to be the smooth, almost real estate broker who makes elegant paintings that function very well? Or do you want to have a lot of fun making weird installations? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. But I was going to say, you do, you do, maybe it doesn't have to be both. Like Matthew Barney, for example, media artist, he, you know, to sell his... Um, films, which he spent a ridiculous sum on. I think we talked about this last podcast. The only way we could sell them is to sell them as an installation. You know, so the installation might actually be one of the keys to increasing the value of the work. But I think, maybe, yeah, maybe you have to be an exceptional artist to make money as an installation artist, and you can be a mediocre painting and make a really good living. Oh, I hundred percent agree with that statement. The like, yeah. all you have to do is walk around New York. Don't go to the galleries you've heard of. Go to the ones you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I think on West Broadway, this? there's a bunch of weird galleries. Yeah, um, <laughs> And you can do the same thing in Toronto. It, yes, go to the bad galleries and then uh, talk to them about their sales. And they're doing quite well. Um, but and, then, yeah, th- yeah, there's something about, like, I really love the early photographic paintings by Gerrit Richter. Oh yeah, and it's it's this simple idea of 
bringing photography to the canvas and to the human gesture, but also the stillness of photography. And it's this weird intersectional sort of contemplative space. So it does have the. I'm with you on your least, good point here, like which is what, like what I'm trying to say is it, it has the radicality mm-hmm. and the conceptual and the intellectual part, but it's also aesthetic. Well, it's also aesthetic, but it's also very Portable finished. Too. It feels like you see mm-hmm. it on the work uh, on the wall, and you're like, oh, this is so peaceful because it will forever be this way. And this, if you can bring the excitement and the peace together, that's something. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like when you buy a new iPhone and you open the box and everything fits in perfectly, and you're like, "Why aren't all phones made this way?" <laughs> that sounds stupid, but like the experience yeah. is fully thought through. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't always. I'm I'm not always a huge fan of um, a story. You know, the ending to you know, like before you, you've read the book. But I think there's a certain place for. You know, it's that always reminds me of that Steve Martin quote. Like Steve Martin would perform on stage for these huge audience, audiences. I've talked about it on the podcast before, but they didn't want any of his new material. They just wanted his old jokes. And a large percentage of the population wants 1960s modernism, right? So, get, why not give them 1960s modernism? This is the cynical view of what you're just, you're describing. But I think that there is, it's it's really hard to educate an audience, and this is true in software too, by the way and sell them something because don't make me think is like the primary rule of selling things. Right. And if you're selling something that is intellectual, it has to, it still needs the, someone has to get it. Like, <laughs> like someone has to understand. Yeah. What that's a good do. point. That's a good point. Cause you can, but that's a decision you have to make for yourself. Cause you might think it's sort of an Andy Kaufman way. Like the less people get the joke, the better the joke is. Or yeah, you can be more like Eddie Murphy and you make uh, Dr. Doolittle or, and you just want <laughs> as many people to join in on the fun. Well, I think of it more like, you know, a lot of artists, it's after they die is the cliche that, you know, their work sells for a lot of money. and But that's obviously not true. That's what keeps us going. Yeah. But in some ways, those artists have always been the artists that were a little bit too far ahead of them themselves, right? Um, and yeah. they, they were 100% I mean, what you, you describe you should do, which is they're so focused on their research to the point. But I would I would try to not be the artist that's uh, uh, accepted that after the death because there's a lot of amazing artists that get groundbreaking groundbreaking work While that were alive. celebrated in their lifetime. Yeah. So why would you want to be? The no, that's why I say it's a stupid cliche. Um, that's really no. But let's let's even say that it's let's say that out of all the artists that are important in history, thirty percent of them were recognized after their death. Mm-hmm. Why would you want to be part of that thirty percent? Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't think anyone would. I, I but I mean, I, I think it's a myth that keeps artists going because it, even if you fail, then at least you feel like there's still hope. So well, it, it, anything all, that keeps you honest, going. In all honesty, it's like it's basically like the church. You know, it's like don't worry yeah. if you don't get it right this time. It's an a religious afterlife. promise. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the the other thing is, uh, I think. I'm I'm really on the side that artists should make a living and be full time and. Uh, I do think the work becomes better when you have more time, and I I do think it becomes better when it's shown in better spaces. Like the work transforms when it shows in a better space. And, yeah, uh, but I, I think we have there has to be some realism. Like for example, no one is going to not no one, but very few people. First of all, if you're in the category of like endurance performance works, which I've been in in my career, you you you're basically 
competing against, um, you know, a, lar- a larger and larger swath of people's attention, right? Like to for someone to dedicate five hours of time to you, the, the num- try and find one person that can do that. It, it's going to be relatively rare. Even like um, your magician who's going to like hold their breath for two days is going to stage that event you know, in parts and they're going to have a television broadcast and stuff. They're going to have to figure out the packaging really does matter. One thing I've seen a lot of media artists do, you know, really poorly, including myself at various stages of my career was blame the audience for not getting it and for not having enough attention for my work. So, you know, if you go to a gallery, I always joke like why there's a there, you'll see where everyone, everyone is sort of like, aggregated around the big shiny works or the big open spaces, usually actually the buffet and wine table. And then there's usually like a room for the media works. It's like a dark room. There's curtains, great sound though, good image. However, there's no one in it. And if there is anyone in it, they're, they're like cowering by the door. And the issue now you might say like, just play to the audience that you, that you have a lot of performers say that. However, like you are taking a social context, which is like a gallery is a social context. I don't care what anyone says. And you're saying, I'm going to create this really anti-social experience. Same thing for your VR artwork, by the way. Like I'm going to create a really anti-social experience so that these people feel terrible about themselves. They leave their friends and the people they want to hang out with just so that they can spend time with my work. I just think it's really, it's bad packaging and it's like really malicious towards the audience in a way that's like, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's, I think it's, at least in my opinion, it's very hard to make art with a goal in mind. So one way to look at art is that it's kind of a a spiritual experience for atheists. And when you think about it, art started out around the church, or Western art did, and a lot of art started around religious ceremonies. And maybe the art remained and the, the religion part was left. Uh, but I think that's but, where you make a, you're making a really good point. Which yeah, is like, but I think a lot of people want art for reasons of stillness, and so they don't want to hang another TV in their room to look at a work because oh, they already this yeah. like they're they're on Zoom the whole day. Why would they want to hang another screen in the in the in the living room? But there's media art that's very successful that has nothing to do with um, and it sells well. That has nothing to do with the like creating new material to hang on walls, like. I'll use yeah. the example of like Janet Cardiff, a Canadian artist who um, makes audio works. And some of the you know things she's created have been multi-speaker installations. So it's installation art. She's also done like audio walks where she like tailors a specific narrative to a walk you take in space in your city or near your home or something like that. And that, yeah. when you think about it, it, oh my goodness, like Nike also does that. And Apple does that now with their fitness products. And it's just that, like, there's... Well, that was my point, like, is it it, where media artists will blame themselves? Exactly. Uh, They they, they will say, oh, it's because of the technology, the work's not selling. It's like, no, maybe it's not good enough. And maybe Janet Cardiff is better, and that's why it's sold. Well, uh, here's the bottom line, I think, is that my my good point for this podcast that I was thinking before the podcast, which I shouldn't have done, but I want to get there, is, like, I really do believe that the media artist actually has a far greater advantage over the painter in our society. So if I go back to my stat that people spend 10 hours on screens a day, and you're even saying people don't want more screens, but if I just go, if I just take the fact that most of people's lives, waking lives are spent on screens, and I just happen to be someone who is a master of the screen, right? Like I've spent my whole creative life thinking about 
how screens function, you know, what the conceptual constraints are of screens, how how to the craft of the screen. How am I at a disadvantage in in this world? How how can I not? How can I possibly be at a disadvantage? I'm not. What I'm I, what I am potentially is ignorant of the competitive constraints of that market. Yeah. Well, there's another point I wanted to make is that uh, there's media art that is uh, net-based and maybe young people and DIY. And then there's media art like the artists you mentioned or maybe um, Namjung Pike and big museum installations. And there's this whole tier of expensive media artists that I never knew about until I moved to New York because then you're in a big city and you Mm. get to see that every now and then. So I only knew our peers, people our age, and you think, oh, net art is hard to sell. And then there's this whole tier of these fancy media artists, let's call them, and then there's the the regular media artists, the, the, the plebs that we're part of. And they're all, for them, preservation is not an issue. It's, it's actually, it sells the work, the fact that it's hard to preserve and that it's the <laughs> best quality speakers and there are these really rare cables. Like a, and yeah. the same way a Dan Flavin neon light work is hard to preserve and then everybody gets really nerdy about the frequency of the neon light and how to recreate it and all and it actually makes the work more valuable but it's you have to break through these several tiers where all of a sudden the difficulty of the work is actually what what is more impressive and that the the collector can boast that they can keep this work alive but to do that you need like what's called like um you know, third party proof, you know, so you, you like you need a partner, whether it's an institution or a major curator or writer. Well, you need success. Yeah. Yeah. But you need you need other part. They, in, even in software. Yeah, you need, like like if you write you. your own reviews on Amazon, <laughs> no one's going to believe you. But even, that's true in software, too. Like we'll have to line up. OK, it's like the, used by The New York Times and like. By yeah. this huge company, these are th- and it does have that network effect. That same thing of software, where if everybody's using that software, then everybody jumps in, and so only a few people win. Well, the rule of you know, kind of brand is that people will cho- the choices they make are dictated by two primary forces. The first is what is everybody else using, and the second is what's the cheapest option. And then after that, you have to stand out on really mm. exemplary terms. There's also the other thing in uh, fashion branding where, it, and a lot of kids, I think, when they're searching for the world and they're discovering the world, they want to know what's the real one. And so you could show them, uh, like there are old fairy tales, like Snow White. Yeah. And then you could show them another cartoon because Snow White is open source. It's an open source story. It's it's a, it, it's not patented. It's It's an old story from 300, 400 years, whatever. So Walt Disney decided to make a movie about it, and maybe someone else did too. And it's, but they were like, "No, I want to see the Disney version. That's the real version." Yeah. And this idea, like Nike, is the real training shoe, and and you would, and so when you it's, get to abstract yeah. painting or shit like that, nobody can tell the difference. If you would not have labels in the museum, people would be embarrassed to point out which is the real one. Mm. And but so it, this yeah. idea of the real, that's, I think, what I'm trying to say with media artists. is like, is this just like a kid on Tumblr or is this a genius? And most people can't decipher it, so they need all these labels, whether it's yeah. the market or the institution or history, well, to yeah, tell we, them what's the real one. You know, currency itself is just built on, you know, the illusion of trust. And so, yeah. you know, it's not, otherwise it's valuable. But that's what I'm saying. It's mm-hmm. like, you have to become a legend. Yeah, I don't disagree. That's my strategy. Yeah. <laughs> But the, 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 the sad thing is you can't just like uh, 
boast yourself. You have to get other people to promote you. And uh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe that gets you to your distribution. Um, you know, po- the point you said you wanted to wait to make, but I do think that um, if people aren't hearing from you, you know, you're you're kind of if you're not top of mind. Like, how many people can you remember? Um, top of mind. And I found in my career, like sometimes it'll just be doing like a little thing like this podcast or whatever that reminds people that I still exist. And then they, when they're like, well, who could we put in this show or what should we do? And who's thought of this idea? They remind, it remind, they'll be like, oh, well, Jeremy's doing this thing or so-and-so is doing that. I saw them doing this. Um, I think you really well, have to be out there distributing your ideas. Th- th- think about glitch art. I think let's, let's keep it close to our scene. Yeah, like, let's go there. There's a, there's a million glitch artists, and I think Ryoji Ikeda is a very successful glitch artist, and I think it's instantly recognizable. It's always black and white. It's kind mm-hmm. of pixelated and noisy. I always think of and Rosa think, Mankman, but similar, yeah. Yeah, but I think in that category, there's a whole bunch, but which one is the Coca-Cola, and then you have another one that's Pepsi, and mm-hmm. another one that's like the home brand at the supermarket. That's true. And, right? You uh, need to know your category. That's like a primary positioning oh god I, yeah but it, it it really feels like some I've, I've spoken to older artists about like the trajectory and all that stuff and some people think it's a meritocracy and the best work surfaces no, no, and some that. people think it's just random and it's not that it's neither of those things though yeah but i do think that like smart artists i, I here's what we should do we should be honest like neither of us is as successful as the most successful artists but we both of us can appreciate what they do well and the things that they do well that they they would say you know are oftentimes they're things that good businesses or good good brands do well like they're good at positioning they're good at choosing a category they're good at pricing they're good at like distribution they're good at marketing they're good at all of those things and they don't pretend like they should just be successful. Like uh, the, the what's the famous line? Like, no, don't wait to for the phone to ring. You know, like it's never going to ring. You got to pick up the phone yourself and dial out. But um, yeah, I, I I feel like there's just I, I wish <laughs> I could just give a clear answer. And I, I think very quickly when you make a a podcast with questions from younger yeah. artists, the question is how do I become successful? Well, why don't we just get here's here's what we can do I, from our own experience. Here's what I can share. Like. The first thing I did coming out of school, I've shared it many times, is like form a collective because I had no money. And so how am I going to even have the tools to make art? Oh, I know. Share the cost of those tools. It's like doesn't take everyone. Almost everyone finds that path. Right. OK, step one. Right. Step two. And, you know, um, start to make, start to make work and build a following without expecting to make money from it. Right. Right. Like just expect to lose money for the first decade. I don't know if that's reasonable, but in my lifetime, this is speaking from my experience, I found a way to make money in advertising that meant that, like I said earlier, I could write that loss off on my taxes. Now, the steps after that, like after you can feed, because there's like surviving, then there's managing, then improving, and then maybe reaching that like, what was the God status? There's the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, to this thing. But you have to start with survival first, right? And then work your way up. Anyone that's trying to solve for being a god on day one is doomed to be like depressed and fail um you yeah know, i mean there's there's time. stories of, of of an artist like uh, basquiat and uh, oh but it's so, so rare no 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 let me finish I, 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 he seems successful right yeah he did yeah, yeah. but he was completely depressed and killed himself and uh, same oh, with riot. mike kelly right 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 
And and I, I remember um, Basquiat was really obsessed. He wanted to be with Castelli, and Castelli was the dealer of Warhol and Liechtenstein and uh, a lot of minimal artists. He was he was the gallerist in New York in in the heyday of New York art. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was really the key point of of, of taste and and authorship and and uh, he was the gatekeeper, is the gatekeeper, and he didn't want to work with Basquiat. He's like, oh, I can't deal with young artists anymore, and he has drug problems, and it's going to be a mess, and I can't deal with. And mm-hmm. I think you're it up was the story of someone seeing Basquiat on a on a bar stool after he was rejected by Castelli, and just being so sad, and he's like, that was the saddest thing I've ever seen, and by any measure, he was. Mega successful, though. But I think the the question today is much more modest. This is like, how can I make a living so I can make more work? It's not the question of like, I want to be the the lord of lords. Well, or most people just want to survive and make some work. So like, well, I, I I think yeah, the prime objective first is to be able to make your work. But uh, I agree with you that there are many artists in art history that made amazing work that had day jobs. So I, I think there's nothing wrong with that. And it's most, it's like, it's like 99.9% of artists. And I think that it's a, I've said it many times on the podcast before. It's not, it's not fair to say that that's not a good strategy. I think it's a great but, strategy. But, but let's for a moment think that there is no way to measure if art is good or bad. And let's say that monetary success is the only objective measure. Mm-hmm. The market tends to reward compact works. Is compact work therefore better than experienced work? And and well, you can you can make a lot of money with experienced art too. I, don't I know. think it, that it, you you know more than you're letting on. One thing that you know very well is you you know you need the show, but you also need the gift shop. So like you you can do both. Like you can. No, do the, I don't agree with that. Well, let's take like um, let's take another like another friend of ours, like like Jan Robert Lichty that we were talking about just like before the podcast. And he did like a lot of browser-based works. And then he found ways to make them compact as like drawings and sculptures. And that doesn't make the browser-based work um, less valuable, but the browser-based work actually informs the value of the compact work. And all I'm saying is like, you know, it's true in um, in Matthew Barney's work and in, uh, in probably in Jeff Koons's work, there's the, there's the huge Play-Doh sculpture. And then there's the mini version that you can like actually fit in your home. And the idea of an index work and franchised works is pretty pretty common, I think. Like, not everyone has a house that would, that can have a 40-foot painting or, like, a, a mural, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but uh, I think it's also interesting when you think about music and that maybe a lot of the most interesting music is made by amateurs in their bedroom now and, and not by professionals. Um, yeah, but the, not all, musicians make a terrible living. Like I've known tons yeah. of musicians in my lifetime that were even famous. Yeah, but like, maybe media artists should feel the same. It's like, I, I'm happy to do festivals and yeah. I won't make a lot of money and it's okay. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I guess yeah. my good point is like, you, you know, you and I have different practices, relatively divergent. We earn similar amounts of money. We're more or less on different, similar happiness wavelengths that neither way is the right way or the wrong way. Would I be happier if I could do art full time? Absolutely, but not if I had to make art I didn't like, you know. Um, and so, you, I think your point, which was the first point, which is like make art you actually like, and then figure out a business model after that is great. I think that's really good advice because um, it's not judgmental. It's super flexible. It's not ignorant of the reality that we all face. But um, well, there's a, there's an example of a 
Dutch painter uh, Jan Schoonhoven, Schoonhoven, or it's, it's a difficult name in English, <laughs> but it, it's from the zero fluxus days. It's all monochrome sort of relief paintings. He, he would use a piece of cardboard and paint it all white and make different slightly spatial structures. But he worked at the post office his whole life, and I think he was kind of a messy person that needed the structure of the day job. Mm. So I worked at the post office and made his work in the evenings on his kitchen table. And even when he started selling a lot, at some point in his 60s or 70s, he showed at, at a important exhibition. And after that, the work really started selling, and he couldn't make them fast enough, basically. He still worked at the post office every day because he liked that structure. And then when you see his work, it's all grids. So it, it <laughs> seems like he was obsessed with structure. Um, but he was consistent, right? Over but a long but the, 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 the point is that the, the day job is actually uh, no problem at all. Like, uh, I like that story. But I also like, you know, one of the things that surfaces from it is he was consistent throughout a lifetime. And so many people it's really hard to here's like it's i think the hardest thing for me is to see how many of my, the people that the artists that i've known in my lifetime some of them whom i felt were far more talented than myself at some point might have given up or stopped doing and maybe i shouldn't judge like great good but i wish they continued and um and you know i want i want people to have a whole life because we talk about it on the podcast all the time like being an artist is like it, it's a life right it's a whole it's a way to live and it's sad to hear, you know, that people that some people feel like they have to give up. And I'm no, I guess I can't figure out why. There are different reasons people stop. But same thing in business too. But I have this sinking feeling. I'm not feeling sure. That it's I, I'm not sure that that's. I think that's. Um, it's a judgment. That's, it, be it, it's case by case. You can't generalize because I do think there's a lot of artists that chose a very radical life and say I'm going to. 100% artist, I won't compromise, and they still kill themselves. Yeah. Well, the other thing so, is, like, they don't necessarily like, kill like, themselves, but maybe they come, they take their skills and, into And someone discipline. else might have been really depressed in their studio trying to do the art thing and then decided, you know what? I'm going to do 9 to 5 and have a nice home with a nice car and have nice meals and yeah. have a family and whatever, and I'm and much I just, happier like, not I just putting myself them. out there waiting to be judged by everyone yeah. and... And I just yeah. and I just put out like a giant guilt trip, like how dare you give up on yourself? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. yeah. I, I think yeah. it's really case by case. It, yeah. I think so much of of art and art teaching is trying to find methods or rules, and I've never found any general rule that even remotely works. Because my my tendency is to sort of sit in a room and wait till the idea comes, and other artists are like. I just have to jump in and be with as many people as possible and talk to as many oh, people. Not, and that, yeah. that's what works for them. So Yeah, everyone has their own way of doing things, I guess. Yeah, and, and also this idea that you have to be pure. Some artists are like, I just wanted you know, I just wanted to become rich and famous, so I made what everyone liked and it worked out. Like It works for some people. It also works yeah, like so, you can climb so a ladder, you could choose I th- not I to think, even look at the ladder. I think good things can come out of an artist thinking as a a, a brand and there's good art that can come out of artists thinking like a monk well at the very you know, like, least both of you and i are very non-traditional by the definition of what you're supposed to do like now we haven't really followed the rules well, maybe maybe one thing i would say is that when i started um uh, it was very clear to me that the institutions would not like my work like i would just especially in the netherlands um it was kind of the tone of voice was very 
They appreciated art that emphasized research. What beautiful and... colors, Raphael. <laughs> no, but my early works were kind of like uh, flat-out jokes. So it, there was oh, right, no yeah. humor in any institution whatsoever. It was completely forbidden. Like, right. There was no example of that being allowed. So no I fart just, noises allowed in the gallery. Yeah, and I accepted that. And then I said, okay, well, I can go on the internet and be myself instead of trying to fit into the gallery system. And uh, I would have to be someone I'm not. Yeah, yeah. The be yourself advice is is great advice. I mean, whether or not it's advice, but it's a great a rule to live by. Um, yeah, but the the um, the fact that when I got older, the, the you know I was more interested in stillness and uh, not in fart noises. That's maybe something that comes with age. I, I don't know. I think it's um, Christina. But it <laughs> might be it might be that I'm I'm slowly adapting because I want to be accepted and subconsciously I'm I'm doing what people I don't think accept so. I'll, I'll, like yeah. I should be vulnerable to say like I've had a terrible time every like every time I've tried I did a bunch, I've done a bunch of gallery shows solo shows for private galleries and they are always a huge failure like and I I now at this stage of my career can admit that it was my fault. And the reason, like, I did the thing where I was like, oh, people just don't understand it. Da, da, da. But honestly, and the gallery sucked too, but I shouldn't just blame the gallery. In most of those cases, I was like, how am I going to make a show that sells, right? And it's just such a, like, it's just the wrong, I, I've, we've just given all this advice, but you got to do this strategy, da, da, da. But like, at the end of the day, that has, ne- it's never worked. The things that have sold have always been a huge surprise to me. Like, I've, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's really to your point, like maybe it's just the being creative and experimenting and going by the beat of your own drum without trying to fit in. I don't, I, I, I'm really worried about like artists going out there and trying to make work themselves because it's just worked so poorly for me. Like I just don't have that talent. Um, in that, yeah. Well, you know. the other thing is that uh, I think the question was also about preservation. The, and was so, it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and one of the, things i was talking about this idea of the art being the spiritual experience spiritual experience for atheists is that immortality comes into play and so a lot of it is you're young and you're like oh i have all this energy and i have these ideas and i see the world a certain way and i want everyone to experience that and see the world through my eyes and i I want generations the next generation will understand me and the next generation and i want to influence people and i want to inspire people Mm -hmm. It's that that energy that you have this this uh, need to be heard, and that not only do you want to be heard by your friends, but also by a larger audience, and not only now, but also tomorrow and the day after, and in five hundred years. Mm-hmm. All that being said, if you're going to make it difficult for people to hold on to the work, but you do want it to be working in five hundred years, I I do think. But the, well, it, this it's is where weird I need to get out the, my one good point that I the, didn't make at the beginning. Of yeah, the but, the, but there are artists who who decided, okay, I'm interested in forever, so I'm going to paint, and I think they'll keep Nam Jung Pike's works running for 500 years because they're difficult to preserve. So yeah, both ways can work. I've been dishonest with our audience and with myself because, like, I started out my career and practice like focused on fluxus work, and the whole point of fluxus practice was to create work that was unsaleable, right? Like it was. Yeah. It yeah. was for the art and, and, exp- and it was also temporary. It was supposed to yeah, fall apart. It's supposed to be experiential. Yeah. And you made a good point early on, which is like, that doesn't mean that it's absent of a business model, but it's experience-based. So if you try and make work that is experience-based, it is literally antithetical to the idea of the opposite. And that was how it was designed. Like 
that practice and the whole the conceptual constraints that we've talked about a few times were, are all there to make it relevant only as long as it's not saleable. As soon as it's for sale, it doesn't make any sense. Um, but so. th- that's also, you bring up an interesting thing that a lot of times I've been to openings and uh, performances and time-based works and installations that felt really thrilling. Mm-hmm. And then you look it up 10 years later and the documentation is not that good and it doesn't look that good. And you're like, was it as good as I thought it was? Well. You You fell in love with the work and then... You might go to a show that doesn't seem thrilling at the time, and then 10 years later, you're like, oh, mm. there was a lot more going on that I didn't see. But and this is where my favorite artist to bring up is Chris Burden by, like, a, you know, Country Mile, because Chris Burden famously refused to allow How dare you like a white male artist? Yeah, yeah, but he refused to allow documentation of his work. What I w- And I'd always heard that, and I'd read about it. And then I remember in grad school, like I was, I was um, TAing, and like I had to like organize the video library, and I found like this video that was like Chris Burden documented works, and I was like, what? What is this? Documented works? He had no documentation. <laughs> and I popped the cassette in the player because that back then it was like cassettes and stuff, and there's like this really awkward image of Chris Burden that comes up on screen, and he's like, okay, like I know I said I wasn't going to do this, and he's like sweating, he's like, but like I kind of did document the works, but it's kind of shitty documentation, and I've never been comfortable sharing it, and I'm really sorry, but this is what I've got, and here's what I'm going to do, I'm going to talk about it while you're watching it, and you know, what so was he, he performed the documentation. Exactly, and what he did through that act is he further reinforced the legend of the experience, right? Like because that's to your my point, argument. You got to yeah, become a be, legend. Yeah. So he he was myth. He was he is the legend, the mytholo- mythological legend of all performance experience based works. Because and his works were so out of control that the documentation could never live up to it. And that was his point. And then he went out and released the documentation and said, this doesn't live anywhere close to what it was actually like. So he reamplified it, which I thought was... That's like that Tenacious D song uh, where they talk about the greatest song ever written, but they don't write that song, but they talk about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, he was a genius of marketing. By the way, he put By his tax way. returns on cable television. Yeah. And when he was making less than $10,000 a year, he bought... But he he's time. a good... He's a he's a good example of stepping out of all the rules and it being spectacular. So, oh, I'm not going to make something that hangs on a wall. I'm going to let someone shoot me in the arm and uh, I won't even let anyone see it and etc. So, while he was in school. Yeah, but in a way it's very easy to it's difficult and easy at the same time. Like the the previous mediums had been exhausted and you know, paintings are great because they can just hang on the wall and be peaceful. And I'm going to do the opposite. And it's a pretty big bet, though. Pretty big bet. <laughs> yeah, but I I feel like when you think about the media age that we live in now, everybody's making clickbait. Yeah, it's trying to get as many clicks as possible. And yeah, so Chris now, Burden on TikTok that would be funny. <laughs> yeah, but like people are like what? Oh, let's let's do a stunt. Let's let someone shoot me. If if some YouTuber would do it, you'd be like, ah. Oh, that's really cheap, like whatever. But well, like it, it, I'm sure. What I'm is, trying to yeah. say is, it's it's maybe more radical to say, okay, I'm gonna make still lives of flowers, and oh yeah, there's something going on here, but people won't notice for another hundred years, and well, well, hopefully, yeah. it's, it's not the it, same context it, or time. No, I know, but it's. It, I I love the work of Chris Burden, but at the same time, if you don't do that well, or you're not the first one, 
and you're like, okay, I'm going to do jackass-type stunts to well, get an audience and be a legend. It, uh, well, the funny thing about Chris Burton is his career was an accident. Like, he wasn't supposed to get shot in the arm. Um, the guy was supposed to miss. <laughs> mm. Like, that that was a performance that went wrong, according to Chris yeah, Burton uh, himself. Yeah. And But it honestly, you know, who could have... <laughs> only a teenager could come up with that which he was at the time basically right to the question of installations it it does bring up a story that I was part of a collective we called it a movement but it was actually more like a collective it was a group of artists and the the name was Neen yeah we both started in collectives yeah Neen yeah so definitely I guess it helped and but we made an installation in a exhibition space in Utrecht actually where I am now which is funny but we should have mentioned Dan Sorry? We should have mentioned you're in Utrecht. Oh, we, yeah. we did. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, in Utrecht, in a place called Costco, it's still there. It's a nonprofit art space. And we made an installation with a few computers that showed stuff in Second Life. With, and an architect had made these sculptural architectural structures there and projection. And then the, it's a long, narrow space. And so there was the art installation, then a wall, and then the office behind it. And Neen was all about technology and accidents and things kind of messing up. There's a car parked outside in the canal in Utrecht. And the person comes from a dinner, I think had a few drinks, hits the gas, and something goes wrong. And they drive straight into the gallery, crush the installation, (laughs) go through the little wall. And then the person sitting there working in administration gets crushed too, breaks her collarbone and her jaw. It was all messed up, but no one ever knew about this story. This story never spread or anything, because I don't think it made sense with the work. But <laughs> what I'm trying to say is you tried your best. there must be so much interesting art that just didn't make it and never was shared and just is forgotten. And, and, well, driving you know, a car that's into a okay gallery too. is the biggest cliche of in- installation art, right? <laughs> 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 but I think I think we were so bad at documenting it too, and I think there are a couple of photos that are very low res, and people are like, "Yeah, that never happened." <laughs> That's an awesome. <laughs> you story, guys, though. you guys came up with that. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's I I did some crazy things early on. I think I've, the gallery for Nike was one of the the dumbest things that I ever did, but. Someone almost got killed. We could killed. do a whole episode on dumb stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shitty, stupid ideas. I mean, that's the thing, too. Like, I think, I mean, early on, actually, I, you know, the thing that I've always come back to is, like, just making sure that I keep alive the experimental, like, hopeful, like, anything is possible attitude that I had when I was first started out. I, I And it always ends up being great when I, do, when I do that. Like, I'm like, breaking rules is the only thing I know how to do well. I think I really do badly at following the rules. I know you said we have to follow the rules, and then I said follow. No, the I never rules. said that. I'm saying it's harder. <laughs> now I'm repositioning yeah. you as the rule follower. Yeah, it's harder, but you're right. Breaking rules is can sometimes be easier, but it as long as you're not hard on yourself about when breaking the rules doesn't work out, because it probably shouldn't. Like, actually, to your point, like there's almost no reason it should be successful. So when it is, it's just like a it's like a little bonus. It's like a little. Oh, no tax this <laughs> no taxes on Fridays? That's fantastic. Yeah. Um and you're you're happier for it, I think. Rather than blaming yourself or beating yourself up that it didn't sell. But uh, yeah, and, and one thing I always think of and that might be what's holding me back, but at the same time it gives me hope is that 
I love finding work that's obscure, whether it's music or movies. The less people know about it, the more I'm excited about it. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, this is my private find. Like I found this YouTube link and it has only 23 views. That must There's be something why, amazing uh, about that's it. how you found me. I well, <laughs> 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 oh, I found the least popular artist in the world. <laughs> I want to be friends with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but so I, yeah, I think as long as you get to make the work, that's already a success. Yeah, for sure. No regrets, no regrets, no fear. Anyway, um, yeah. that was a great question, and there's so much more to talk about, including the fact that I, I really do believe that um, we're just at the very beginning of a world where we will be buying and selling and trading digital artifacts and works. Um, I, but I think physical stuff's not going anywhere either. It's just, you already do it. You, you buy and sell software every day, and no one ever talks about Are any that. artists selling Zoom backgrounds? I don't know, why not? I mean, you could you yeah. could have a whole service, which is like you could design your practice as a service, software as a service, where you curate backgrounds for boring office, you know, folks, and they pay you like ten bucks a month. I'm sure you could accumulate like a hundred subscribers and live off of that. Like, there's just so much opportunity. That's where I was trying to go with like, if you're if you're a craftsperson on of screens, like you understand the screen craft better than anyone else. Um, hey, you've got like all the advantages. Go out and like figure something out. I'm really excited to see people experiment more, frankly, with all of the financial platforms that there are on the internet um, that make it possible for you to monetize um, and do, you know, experiment with business models without any risk. Like, don't, it doesn't cost anything to, like, try selling something, um, especially in a digital environment, because there's, like, zero marginal cost to distribution and material cost, you know, there's just your time. So yeah. Value, value do people still, st still sell ringtones? I know. Like, can you imagine like what a great, what a good point, Raphael. I'm almost, we could end on that point, which is like <laughs> who, you know, who would have thought like, it doesn't make any sense today. And it didn't make any sense probably in 1985. <laughs> it was a brief moment. But yeah. for a brief moment in time, that was a, like a, that was a billion dollar idea, you know? So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Go out and figure out what. Did you? It was Crazy Frog popular in Canada. Crazy Frog. <laughs> no, we no look, look it up frog. on YouTube. Okay, that's a good one. All uh, right. I'll put the sound of the Crazy Frog at the end of the episode. Oh, please do. Yeah, so it was, it was big. We do need questions, more questions from our audience. If you've made it this far, um, we're running out of questions. It'll be the true sign of an unsuccessful podcast if we say ask me anything and nobody asks anything and there's only like three questions but maybe it's a true sign that we know nothing about what we're talking about yeah. <laughs> um, but we do appreciate hearing from you and we would really appreciate your question and if you don't feel like recording it um, we'll pressure you into recording it but that doesn't mean that we won't use your question so please um, send us your question by however well basically if you if you prefer sending it in text, then we'll just use a text-to-speech tool to put it in the episodes. So oh, that's a good too. idea. Okay, yeah, we could do that. Yeah. Um, but we have You to can be anonymous, too. We don't have to mention your name if that's holding you back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could use a deep, um, growly voice or a Michael Jackson voice. Yeah, or you can use one of those services to sell, send uh, anonymous emails and, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, do it. Oh, yes, I like this idea. Could we get, like, more, like, sort of dark web people <laughs> <asking us laughs> do we want that <laughs> yes yes yeah. uh, we didn't even talk about the game stocks uh, wall street game, bets the wall street bets we should have talked about stock investing on this podcast aren't you don't you think 
the focus on money is getting out of hand? Like the, the, the brain space that people allocate to money? No, it makes total sense. Why would I spend money? Uh, why would I spend time on Instagram when I could spend time on, on uh, Robinhood? It's the same, same reward. No, I know. Like, but uh, uh, just in general, like, wouldn't it be better to spend time uh, learning, yes, I don't know, playing a guitar? But that, was, that was the answer to not using Instagram or Facebook too. Like the answer to all of those things is yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're going to swap one for the other, I might as well make a buck. You know, I think that's yeah. the way people are thinking about it. Anyway, good on them for like teaching Wall Street a lesson is what I say. Um, thanks for listening. And what else? Raf, you're, yeah. you're coming back uh, back to the East Coast though, right? You're going to be in Florida yeah, next yeah. time we chat. I'm, I'm going to be in Florida in a while. But I think next week I'm still in Utrecht. So. Oh, okay. Well, if we're on uh, next week, then I'll talk to you then. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Ding 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 bam 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 bam